morning. It is my honor and privilege to be here this morning. I'm so thankful for this church. Kevin has been a dear friend to me for a long time. And if you don't know me, I was in Hendricks County for 12 years. I was pastor of the Bible Church of Brownsburg. And uh, when I came to town, um, someone told me about Kevin Kotke. He said, you need, to, you need to meet this man. He's old and been doing this for a long time. <laughs> no, I don't think they said that. But, but uh, I, I remember calling Kevin up and getting together. And he was such a, a great counselor and friend to me. And, and Debbie has been that for my wife as well. So, and you guys are a supporting church. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't be able to do what I do, which I believe is what God has called me to do uh, on the campus of WVU if it weren't for your support and the support of, of many others. So thank you for that. Uh, before I was at WVU, I was at the United States Naval Academy. I was doing FCA ministry for seven years there. I was the basketball chaplain there. So I've transitioned from basketball to football. And um, that means going from a roster of 20 to 22 to a, a roster of 120. And um, so trying to get to know names. And, uh, you know, at least for WVU, they don't have the names on the back of their practice jerseys. And, and then they wear helmets. So you can't see their faces. So last fall, I had the media guide with me wherever I went, trying to learn names and faces, hometowns, all those things. But uh, we are glad to be there. We've been there for one year now and, and looking forward up to uh, uh, the next school year coming up very, very soon. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And today I would like to preach from this great book, looking at really verses 19 through 21. I'm going to pick it up in verse 18 just for a little context. Uh, let me read that um, passage and this my sermon title today would be joy and suffering how to have joy in the midst of suffering in the midst of trials and difficult situations so philippians chapter 1 let's begin in verse 18 paul says what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in this i rejoice yes and i will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Well, on Wednesday, May 21st, 2008, Maria Chapman the youngest child of Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth Chapman was killed after being struck by a car driven by her teenage brother. It happened in the driveway of the family's Williamson County home in Tennessee. Maybe you remember hearing about this. Maria was the youngest of the Chapman's six children. She was five years old. The memorial service was held on Saturday, May 25, 2008, and this is from the Tennessean newspaper in Nashville. It said, just feet away from Maria's tiny white coffin, Shale Hannah Chapman stood with her parents and listened as her daddy read a letter that she wrote. It was addressed to two people above, her sister and Jesus. Maria's stuffed animals are going to be packed away and put into the attic. Stephen Curtis Chapman, a well-known Christian singer and songwriter, read in a steady voice 
that sometimes trailed off into a whisper. Enjoy heaven, he continued, addressing some 2,000 mourners Saturday at his five-year-old daughter's funeral at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. I will see you soon, but not too soon. I hear the roads are made of solid gold and God waits for everyone. When you see that I'm coming, wait for me at the gate. He continued as Maria's pictures, smiling in huge sunglasses or sitting next to her birthday cake, flashed on two screens behind him. Maria was one of the Chapman's three adopted daughters from China and joined the family in 2004. Chapman and his wife Mary Beth also have three biological children, and they were celebrating the recent engagement of their eldest daughter, Emily. The Saturday service, sometimes pierced by spontaneous laughter from the pews caused by funny Maria stories, also served as a reminder that another life, that of the teenage boy who drove the truck, had been shattered. I haven't always been a good brother, one of the Chapman boys said. Just like my dad helped Maria, I hope I help my brother. God healed Maria in a way we don't like, but he's going to heal my brother in a way we're going to like. Those in the sanctuary got up and applauded. And then Chapman recalled how he tried to fight for his little girl in the hospital, how he told the doctors he needed to pray that he needed to save her. That's what you do as a dad, he said, his voice breaking up. And how he asked God for a sign to know that his daughter was okay and the frustration when it didn't come. Not right away, he said. And then he found a card Maria painted but never finished. When he turned it around, he read the word, See. And I heard her little voice and the voice of God, he said. She said, See, Dad, it's okay. Well, the Chapmans endured great suffering. Do you not agree? And yet they have also experienced great joy. How is that possible? When you lose your youngest daughter at the age of five, a daughter that they went to great lengths to go and adopt and bring into their own family. When your teenage son is the person responsible for your little girl's death, something that he will have to live with for the rest of his life. Well, the Chapmans are able to have joy even today for several reasons. One, because of the reminder of God's sovereign care of his children that was given to Stephen as he came to grips with the reality of his little girl's death. Also because of the assurance of Maria's salvation that he shared with those in attendance at the memorial service that Christ or that Maria had professed Christ as savior. They could rejoice because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was shared with 2000 friends and family members in attendance that day. And because of the worship that took place that day at Christ Presbyterian Church. Michael W. Smith began with a prelude and sang the song Still. Pastor Scotty Smith, who was the teaching pastor at the time at Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, continued, with the, serv- continued the service with a call to worship. With a congregational responsive reading of a portion of the Heidelberg Catechism and the question, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And here is the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood 
has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That is how you and I can have joy in the midst of great suffering. And as you already know from personal experience, and as you will see in the the verses that precede our text this morning, we are going to face suffering, great trials, and incredible difficulties. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not a big fan of that verse. I I wish Paul would have said, you might be persecuted, you know, but he says, you will be. I've never seen that verse on a bumper sticker. You know, no one puts that on their car. James 1-2, James, the brother of Jesus, said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James says, when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter them, but when. And you will, and I will, and you have, and I have. And James says, when you do, when those times come, Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Evaluate it and have joy. Well, how do we do that? How do we get to a place in our lives where we can have joy in the midst of great suffering? How can we experience the same joy that the Chapman family experienced despite the loss of a precious little girl? How can we obey the God-given mandate from James, the brother of Jesus, to Consider it joy when we face various trials. How can we get to the place where Paul was while in prison when he wrote to the Colossians and said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Well, I believe we will get there when we have the attitude and the perspective of the Apostle Paul. When we too can say with confidence and sincerity What I see is a theme in the book of Philippians that goes like this. It does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. I see that throughout the book of Philippians. Let me say it again. It does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. And in the opening verses of Philippians, Paul kind of lays out the three purposes of suffering. It's for, number one, the evangelization of unbelievers. Number two, it's for the edification of the saints, the building up of the body. And thirdly, it's for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But today I would like to give you five ways to have joy in the midst of suffering so that the gospel would be advanced in our lives. So number one, you will have joy in the midst of suffering when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. You will have joy in the midst of suffering when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. I want you to look back at verse 19 where Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been confident about something? 
confident that something was going to happen. Like you were 99.99% sure that something was going to happen. I remember watching the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Remember that? And I'm talking about the classic ones with Regis Philbin when it first came out. And uh, the first man to win a million dollars on the show, the final question that he got was, which U.S. president appeared on the show Laugh-In? And if you remember the format of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you had these different lifelines, right, that you could use to, to try to come up with the correct answer. And the man was so confident that he knew the final answer that he used his lifeline to call his father. And when his dad answered the phone, he told him, hey, dad, I really don't need your help. I just want you to know that I'm going to win the million dollars. It was classic television. Well, Paul was not only confident about his deliverance here, he was absolutely sure. He says, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul uses the Greek word here, oida, which means to know, and it means to know with certainty. He was convinced that his present suffering would turn out for his deliverance. And he is so confident that he quotes directly from the Septuagint or the LXX, which is the, the Greek translation of the, whole, of the Old Testament, quoting from the book of Job. Paul knows why he is in prison. He knows that he is there because of his faith in Christ, because of his witness for the gospel, because of his preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. He knows that God knows his plight. He knows that God sees all things and he knows that he will be vindicated. And therefore, the apostle can rejoice. Look what he says. We read that in verse 18 there at the end. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know, verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance. The Lord had given Paul assurance that this would turn out for his deliverance. He was so confident that he could compare his situation to Job and say from the inerrant word of God, this also will be my salvation. Paul trusted in the sufficiency of the word of God. And there will be times that you and I find ourselves in a place when we are not sure of the outcome. We will not know how things are going to turn out. And it is then that we must trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. A few years before Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, before he was in prison, he wrote to the believers in Rome saying this. You know this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul was not sure what all was going to happen to him, but he could have joy. He could rejoice. He could have joy in the midst of this trial because he understood this truth that it does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. Although he was unsure of all that was going to take place, all that was soon to happen to him, he was confident in the word of God. And he was confident in his God. And he was confident that he would be delivered. Deliverance comes from the Greek word soteria, which is commonly translated salvation. Some interpret Paul's comments here to refer to his deliverance from sin and death. Through faith in Christ. In other words, Paul was 
confident that his salvation was eternally secure. And I believe that is the correct interpretation here. The important thing to Paul was that Christ was being preached. The gospel was being advanced. And Paul was secure in the fact that he would one day see the Lord. He shared the same confidence as Job before him. In Job 19, 25 to 26, you know these verses as well. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take the stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. Paul did not have his freedom. He could not be with the ones he loved, but he did have joy. And he did have confidence in the sufficiency of the word of God, that he would be delivered and that God would be glorified. Friends, there will be times when the word of God will be all that you have. And I want to assure you this morning that it will be at those times that the word of God will be all that you need. We can have joy in the midst of trials because of the sufficiency of the word of God. Secondly, we can have joy in the midst of suffering when you rely on the supplication of the saints. You can have joy in the midst of suffering when you rely on the supplication of the saints. Look at verse 19 again. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Paul had complete confidence in the sovereignty of Almighty God. He was completely confident in the sufficiency of the word of God. But he also understood that God's sovereign plan included the prayers of his people. I don't know about you, but do you ever feel selfish for asking others to pray for you? I mean, when you see all the suffering going on in the world and when you see someone who's going through a really difficult time and then... You go, man, I really don't want to ask someone to pray for me. This seems like such a minor thing that I'm going through. You ever feel tempted to think that this is not appropriate, that I'm being selfish and asking others to pray? I think the Apostle Paul was a great model for us. He was not afraid to seek the prayer support of other believers. And if Paul was willing to do that, why should we not be willing 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. And yet he will deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Second Thessalonians 3, 1 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. There are two things you've probably heard regarding prayer. One is true and one is false. I'll let you figure out which is which. Prayer changes things. That's one. The second one, prayer changes God's mind. Well, I'll tell you right away. My prayers do not change the mind of God. God is sovereign. He has declared the end from the beginning. He knew that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade. 
But in his sovereignty, he has chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. Sally and I used to live in Bellingham, Washington, right after I graduated from seminary. And I I served there as the pastor of student ministries at a church, Emanuel Bible Church there. And we were privileged to get to know a family named the Knuckles family. Russ and Mary were the mom and dad. And they had a son named Seth who contracted cancer when he was a teenager, just a few years before we got there. And it was very serious. It was a very aggressive kind of cancer, a rare kind of cancer. It uh, required intense chemotherapy. And he went down to Seattle Children's Hospital for that for many, many weeks. And Seth has gotten all the chemo that his body can take. And he has now been cancer-free for over 20 years, praise God. But when he got cancer, many people in his family and in that church prayed that Seth would be healed and that his life would be spared. And it was. You see, God was going to allow Seth to die. But then he heard everyone praying down here and he decided to let him live. Right? No, that's not how it works. God had predetermined that Seth would live. And he sovereignly allowed his people to pray for Seth. And he used those prayers to accomplish what he had already decided to do. My prayers do not change the mind of God, but they do change me. They strengthen my faith and they cause me to love God more when I depend on him. Paul relied on the prayers of the saints and you and I need to rely on the prayers of others. Don't be afraid to ask others for prayer. And thank you to those of you who do. It is a blessing, isn't it? To be able to pray for other people. And God uses that prayer to accomplish his will. I said this many times to our congregation in Brownsburg when I was the pastor there that praying for others is one of the most unselfish things that you can do. I would argue this morning that asking others to intercede on your behalf is one of the most unselfish things you can do because when, when others pray, God uses those prayers to accomplish his sovereign will. And in that process, people are changed and God is glorified. So you will have joy in the midst of suffering when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God when you rely on the prayers of others, and thirdly, when you, depend, when you depend on the supply of the Spirit. When you depend on the supply of the Spirit. Look at verse 19 again. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Word of God, the supplication of the saints, The power of the Holy Spirit all work together for the benefit of the servants of God. The word translated provision here describes a full, bountiful, and sufficient supply of what is needed. Paul here seems to be speaking not so much about what the Spirit does at salvation, but what he does after salvation. Providing power and protection for the believer in Christ. The Spirit of God becomes the believer's resource for everything that he needs. We learn much about this role of the Holy Spirit from the scriptures. We see that the Spirit provides guidance when believers do not know what to say. 
Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 19 to 20, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of the father who speaks in you. We see that the spirit helps believers to pray when they don't know what to pray. Romans eight twenty six. in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We see that the spirit is the believer's source of power. Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of West Virginia. I'm sorry, it says remotest part of the earth, okay? Sometimes West Virginia feels that way, Justin. I'm just being serious, okay? The Spirit also produces fruit in the believer's life. Galatians 5, to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul was in prison in Rome as he wrote to the Philippians. He was in chains. He was in circumstances that he would have never chosen for himself. But he could have joy because he was never alone. He trusted in the promise that God would never leave him or forsake him. And he remained with Paul through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Friends, we have been saved by Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, you have been saved. And one of the evidences that we belong to him is that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says there in Ephesians that that sealing guarantees our inheritance. It has been given as a down payment or the old King James word as an earnest guaranteeing our salvation. Not only that, but the spirit of God serves as our supply, strengthening, strengthening us in our time of need and enabling us to have joy in the midst of trials and difficulties and even great suffering. You will have joy in the midst of suffering when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God, when you rely on the supplications of others, when you depend on the supply of the spirit, and number four, when you, when you rest in the surety of God's promises. When you rest in the surety of God's promises. Look at verse 20. Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The language is very clear here that Paul's earnest expectation and hope was not in his own wishful thinking, but it was in the promise of the Lord. Earnest expectation, this literally means strained expectancy. It refers to the stretching of the neck. Paul had hope. Paul had certainty that in the eyes of Almighty God, he would never be put to shame in anything. Whether he was before Caesar or the world or even the church, he looked forward to seeing what God would do. He looked ahead with absolute joy despite his circumstances 
despite the fact that his future was unclear. Paul did not despise his situation. He was not sulking. He was reveling in the opportunity to glorify God. He was rejoicing in the fact that because of his circumstances, Christ was being preached and the gospel was being advanced. Paul took advantage of his situation, seeing this situation as one more opportunity to bring glory and honor to Christ. I went to the University of Indianapolis for my undergrad, and there was a cross-country and track athlete there named Brett Nealon. Brett was a senior when I was a freshman, and I got to know him a little bit. Uh, I ran cross-country my sophomore year, and Sometimes he would come back and run with us to show us that he was still physically dominant over every other runner and beat us in practice races. Um, But I got to know him better after college. We were both living in Brownsburg. He was a teacher at the middle school. Uh, He was the high school track and cross-country coach there. And I got to substitute teach for him and and got to know him pretty well. He had to give up running. Later, because he had bad knees, and so he took up cycling and became one of the best cyclists in the state of Indiana. In June 2006, Brett was in a race in Wilmington, Ohio, and was coming to the end of the race and was sprinting for the finish line. And there was a crash right in front of him that he was unable to avoid. And he was thrown from his bike and landed on his head and actually went into a car that was parked along the street. And Brett became a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair with no movement below his shoulders. Brett had a girlfriend at the time named Tracy. Months after his accident, Tracy became his fiancée, and she later became his wife and his primary caregiver. And for seven years, every Wednesday morning, As Brett, after a year of of recovery and and getting used to his wheelchair and moving into a new home, returned to the classroom at Brownsburg High School and returned to coaching track and cross country. It was amazing. And um, every Wednesday morning for seven years during the school year, I would go to Brett's house at 530 in the morning and help him get ready for school. I remember I could not sleep on Tuesday nights. I was always so nervous about going to his house on Wednesday mornings. He was very particular. He wanted his hair a certain way. And I mean, I, I always was afraid I was going to drop him, not getting him from the bed into his wheelchair. But those were some, some awesome mornings, just trying to serve this friend of mine. And uh, because of that, because of the relationship that I developed with Brett and his wife, Tracy, uh, they asked me to do their wedding, to officiate their wedding. And I remember after the ceremony... We were downtown at the Idle Jorg Museum and a nice big reception, and it was time for the first dance. And Brett and Tracy went out on the dance floor, Brett in his wheelchair. He uses a straw to control his, tra- his chair, the movement, the speed. They went out there, and Tracy acted like she was twirling Brett around. Brett would go in circles in his wheelchair, and it was beautiful. I, I remember being there with Sally and just having tears of joy for this couple, making the most of a very difficult situation. Well, Paul was in a difficult situation, but he was confident and he was determined to not be put to shame in anything. Look at verse 20 again. He says, but that with all boldness, 
Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul would continue to preach Christ and to do so with all boldness, not worrying about what might happen to him so that Christ would be exalted. He knew that this is what God wanted from him more than anything else, to be glorified in him, whether in life or in death. Paul could say with complete confidence and hope that if I am to go on living, Christ will be exalted. And if I am to die for my love for Christ, Christ will be exalted. This is what truly mattered to the apostle. He understood that his chief purpose in life was to glorify God. And he was determined to do that with his life. And he was determined to do that even in death. It did not matter if they killed him because Paul's sins had been forgiven. His name had been written in the Lamb's book of life. He was bound for heaven, for eternity, where he would see and live with Christ. And therefore, in the midst of suffering, he could rejoice. Friends, I I want to remind you again, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we are going to go through trials and difficulties. We live in a fallen world. We will face suffering in this life. But we too can have joy in that suffering when we rest in the surety of God's promises. We have a God who cannot lie. Amen? I'm so glad there are some things God cannot do. He cannot lie. That's a good thing. And that means that what he has promised must come true. In verse 6 of this chapter, it's probably close enough you can look at it. I love this verse where Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing else matters. God finishes what he begins. So you will have joy in the midst of suffering when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God, when you rely on the supplications of others, when you depend on the supply of the Spirit, when you rest in the surety of God's promises, and finally, when you trust in the sovereign plan of Almighty God. When you trust in the sovereign plan of Almighty God. Verse 21, we know this verse so well, but Paul says here, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I remember singing a little chorus growing up with these words. For me to live is Christ to die is gain, to know his word and walk his narrow way. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill like walking in his will. For me to live is Christ to die is gain. Christ is life. To live, to truly live, is to know Christ. And that was the goal of the Apostle Paul. Not just to come to know Christ in salvation, but to continue to know him. And to grow in him and to become more like him. Flip over to Philippians chapter 3. It's just too good to, to, to... We need to look at it and not me just quote it for you. But Philippians three ten to 11... Look at what Paul says. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's supreme goal 
in life was to know Christ and to make him known to those around him. And he would do this until the day he died. He wrote to Timothy at the end of his life and told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you see why Paul could say to die is gain? He could say that because it meant he would see Christ, his creator, his savior, his redeemer, and his Lord. He would be rewarded upon seeing Christ because he was faithful. Death was a good thing to Paul. In fact, Paul says later in Philippians, it is very much better to depart and be with Christ. Death is good. There's no more pain. There's no more sadness. There's no more separation. There's no more suffering. How many of us can truly look forward to death in that way? I'd like to conclude with something from the book of Acts. So if you would turn back just a few books to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're not going to look at this entire chapter, but I want to see those final verses in this chapter as we look at the life of Stephen. So Acts 7 verses 54 through 60. Stephen has preached this great sermon, kind of giving a a history of the Israel of Israel and how they rejected the prophets and now they've rejected Jesus Christ. In verse 54, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is described in Acts 6 as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 7, 1 to 53, Stephen preached Christ. And to him, Christ was life. To live was Christ. And as we have just seen, to die for Stephen was gain. He was soon to join his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even as they threw stones at him. And there are large rocks in Israel. We got to go with Bookman in 2020 before the world shut down, and there are rocks everywhere in Israel. And he could forgive them because death was gained for Stephen and for Paul. And we who know Christ should see death as gain as well. We can have joy in the midst of suffering even if that suffering leads to death, because we know Christ and the fact that God is sovereign over both life and death. 
And we can say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In 1994, I was living in Danville, Illinois. I was on staff at a church called Calvary Baptist Church. I was also on staff with FCA then in East Central Illinois. And one of the schools that I worked with at that time was the University of Illinois. And in 1994, Illinois had a pretty good football team. They had a coach named Lou Tepper, a strong believer in Christ, one of the godliest men I've ever met. A man who started, even during the football season, started every morning in the word and prayer from 5.30 to 6.30 a.m. And it was the final home game of the season. And Illinois was playing Penn State. And it was senior day. Illinois was 6-3, and three, and they had won four of their last five games, losing only to number 11 Michigan by less than a touchdown. And Penn State was the number two team in the nation, second only to Nebraska. That's for you, John. Illinois would have to play their best game to, to have a shot at beating Joe Paterno and the Nittany Lions. In the first quarter, I was at that game on the 50-yard line. Things went Illinois' way early, and... It was 21 to 0, Illinois, with 10 minutes to go in the first quarter. And I remember being nervous before that game started. I was more nervous when Illinois was at 21 to nothing because I knew how good Penn State was and they were not just going to lie down. They were battling for a national championship. Well, Illinois was still leading 31 to 28 in the fourth quarter. The Illini failed to get a first down and they punted all the way to the Nittany Lions four yard line with just six minutes to play. If Illinois could just hold them, they would win. Well, Penn State had a quarterback. Maybe you've heard his name before. His name was Kerry Collins. And he led the Nittany Lions on a 96-yard scoring drive to win the game 35-31. to It was heartbreaking. And I was a kid from Indiana, but I was cheering for Illinois that day. Lou Tepper was a Christian, and one of the Coaches on his staff was a guy named Sherman Smith, who was also a believer. He spent eight years in the NFL. He was the running backs coach. And after that game, as soon as the game was over, Coach Sherman Smith came up to Lou Tepper, put his arm around him, and he said, Coach, are you happy? The coach said, I'm, no, I'm not happy. We had this game won. We had them beaten. We were ahead 21 to 0. We had the game. We let it slip away. Of course I'm not happy. And then Sherman Smith, knowing his friend and his fellow coach, said to him, Coach, do you have joy? And Coach Tepper said, absolutely. I love that story. Because, friends, we are going to go through many, many trials. Many of you already have. Some of you may be in the midst of a trial even now. You will be able to have joy in the midst of your, of your trial, in the face of adversity, in the eye of the storm, in the time of great difficulty, when you trust in the sufficiency of the word of God, when you rely on the supplication of others, when you depend on the supply of the Spirit, when you rest in the surety of God's promises, and when you trust in the sovereign plan of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is so complete. It has everything that we need. Lord, you have given us all that we need in your holy, inspired, inerrant word. It is our authority. It is the book by which we live.
and have life. It's how we know what is right and what is wrong. And Lord, you have even told us how to deal with trials. Lord, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is opposed to you and your kingdom. We see that more each and every day. God, this is where you have us for now. We know this world is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven, that one day we will see Christ and we will always be with the Lord. But Lord, as we live in this fallen world, we will go through various trials, difficulties, hardships, and at times even great suffering. Thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us in your word through the Apostle Paul, what we are to do and how we are to have joy in the midst of those trials. So, Lord, help the dear people of Plainfield Bible Church. Help me as well to trust in the sufficiency of the word of God. Help us to rely on the prayers of others, that we would not be ashamed to ask others to pray on our behalf. Lord, help us to depend on the supply of the Holy Spirit that you have given us, that indwells us, that is our helper. Lord, help us to rest in the surety of your promises. May we never forget your promises. May we never forget that we serve a God who cannot lie. And God, help us in our trials to trust in the sovereign plan of Almighty God. God, you have declared the end from the beginning. Nothing takes you by surprise. So, Lord, help us to trust you. Thank you for your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.